Hello, my name is Rachel King and I'm the Literary Director of the Word Christchurch Writers and Readers Festival. I'm pleased to introduce this 2016 Word Christchurch Festival podcast, Tales from the Ice, presented by Antarctica New Zealand. In this session, be transported to Antarctica, the world's last great wilderness, with tales of adventures on icy land and sea. ITV science broadcaster Alok Jha was recently trapped in the Antarctic ice aboard a Russian research ship that became the focus of an international row. Rebecca Priestley's new Antarctic science anthology, Dispatches from Continent 7, tells tales of scientific daring-do old and new. Matt Vance's Ocean Notorious tracks stories of the Southern Ocean, from obsessive Southern explorers of the heroic era to solo sailors in tiny yachts. This session is chaired by Metro's editor-at-large, Simon Wilson. There are tales galore, and David Lewis is one of my favourite. He was probably one of the um, most underrated New Zealanders I think who's ever lived. Um, he didn't actually start sailing in places like that until he was 40. So he was a bit of a champion of the, of the Grey right. Movement before the Grey Movement ever happened. Um, but fear is always a part of it, even on an expedition ship, especially if you're in charge of it, is you're always thinking ahead and the weather is, is everything. And there are times when it, it is just you know, uh, awe-inspiring. And that is part of the attraction, though. It's not, all, it's not a fear that pushes you away. It's actually a fear that can actually draw you to it as well. Now, you're famous as the man who single-handedly made Macquarie Island uh, become, start to become pest-free, right? Yeah, well, no. <laughs> tell us the story of that. And not me, single-handedly, but... Um, well, the way you tell it. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people who we would take to Macquarie, um, every time we would go there, we'd see the hills move, the rabbits uh, would sprint around. There's a lot of wildlife on the beach. Um, Macquarie is quite a depressing place in terms of its weather. It's five degrees, horizontal rain all year round. Um, and, but the rabbits were killing the, the vegetation, and the vegetation is a big part of the, the picture in somewhere like Macquarie. Um, you, and you, you say in the book, you, can, you stand on the boat and you can see the hill move. Oh, you know, in those days you could go like that and yeah. hear the, you know, the whole hill would yeah. shimmer with rabbits. But uh, you know, eventually, and we encourage everyone on board to write letters to senators and what have you in Australia, because it is part of Australia, not part of New Zealand, even though it's uh, geographically part of New Zealand. Um, and that's, you know, you, you, that's the reason you run these expeditions and the reason that you, can, you, know, you talk to these people is that you're trying to convert um, people who can do things to actually make a, make a difference. And another example of that is the mouse eradication on the Antipodes, which has just recently happened, and that's in the same... You have to see it to believe it, and there's no point conserving something that's out of sight and out of mind. So it's a big part... Advocacy is a big part of uh, what you do as an right. expedition leader. Yeah. And you, you, well, the story you tell in the book is that you would sit there and have your cup of tea, a strong mug of tea, and a scone, yep. and write letters to the minister of whoever. Yeah, it was always a, r- a rich one. Stain them with the jam and the. Yep, <laughs> and that's and that's what it became. Just doggedness, because mm. you just do it every time you were there, and you encourage everyone around you to do it, and it seemed to work. I don't know whether it was us or whether it was a whole lot of other things, but every bit helps. And There's a certain kind of person who lives in places like this, isn't there? Uh, there certainly is. <laughs> you like to read? <laughs> uh, they're all there the for point of marks your friend Ted. Can you see on the on this? Yep. Yeah. I don't know where I'll stop. But I'll... Stop where I've marked that. Oh, there you go. Okay. You mark, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is uh, a chap I met in Macquarie, and he's one. Of, he was a, a penguin scientist, and there are a lot of different scientists there, of course. Ted and I have become friends within the limits of what a two-day acquaintance will allow. I'm accompanying a group of birders voyaging south and our stay is limited. He accompanies me to the mess room for my ritual scone and cup of tea. He takes extra helpings of cream with a scone and drinks his strong tea slowly. He checks the underside of the tables to find find the one I chalked the coordinates I left the year before. Then he finds the correct table with a big snorting laugh and shoots out of him like a wheeze. A group of birders joins us for some respite from the weather. They quiz Ted. Their answer to, is that the northern or the southern giant petrel, is easy. But the answer to, is that the male or the female king penguin, is not. It's hard to say until you upend them and have a good look. Ted swivels his hands around and dips his head as though he's inspecting a penguin crotch. <laughs> the birders aren't satisfied. They shuffle with str- restrained agitation and look like prolonging discussion until suddenly a red pole finch is spotted over by Hasselborough Beach. The red pole is common in New Zealand hill country, but rare on sub-Antarctic islands. The birders charge out the door and over to the beach, leaving Ted and me to finish our scone in peace. This is my kind of place, Ted says, as he uses one of his sweeping hand gestures to encompass the penguins and the delightfully rabbit-free hills framed in the window. You don't mind the harsh climate, I say? Nah, 
This place is more alive than anywhere I've ever lived, he pauses and spreads his arms wide. Every man has his island, and I guess this is mine. He introduces me to some of the staff. It's apparent most are escaping from something. For some, it's a big thing like society. For others, it's more specific, an overbearing boyfriend or an unhealthy interest in games of chance. As it turns out, Ted is escaping marriage gone sour and a dreaded nine to five job in the city. As I hop on board a Zodiac full of birders and we begin to bash our way back out to the waiting ship, I catch a glimpse of Ted between the waves. He's standing on the beach surrounded by king penguins. I can't see his face, but his arms are giving, giving me the impression he is smiling. As the ship begins to weigh anchor, a swarm of kings encircles us. A ring of shining liquid silk quietly rotating clockwise. Occasionally a curious head pops up to the surface. A rushing crewman, the rushing crewmen lean over the rail of the ship, flashing gold-toothed grins and pointing. Pengvin, one says, and a couple of his fellow sailors rub their stomachs in mock hunger. <laughs> Pengvin dinner, they repeat, laughing loudly, as Russians often do. Thank you. So that's the sub-Antarctic islands, and then eventually you arrive at Antarctica. I'm going to read a piece from 1840 by the explorer Joseph du because this is a different way to do it. It was nearly nine o'clock when, to our great joy, we landed on the western part of the most westerly and the loftiest islet. The Astrolabe's boat had arrived a moment before, and already the men had climbed up the steep sides of this rock. They hurled down the penguins, who were much astonished to find themselves so brutally dispossessed of the island, of which they were the sole inhabitants. We also jumped on shore armed with pickaxes and hammers, the surf rendered this operation very difficult. I was forced to leave several men in the boat to look after her. I then immediately sent one of our men to unfurl the tricolour flag on this land, which no human creature had either seen or stepped on before. Following the ancient custom, faithfully kept up by the English, we took possession of it in the name of France, as well as of the adjacent coast, which the ice prevented us from approaching. Our enthusiasm and joy were such that it seemed to us we had just added a province to French territory by this holy Pacific conquest. If the abuse that has been born of such acts of possession has caused them to be often regarded as ridiculous and worthless, in this case at any rate, we believed ourselves sufficiently in the right to maintain the ancient custom in favour of our country, for we dispossessed none and our titles were incontestable. We regarded ourselves therefore as, as, at once as being on French soil, and there is at least this advantage that will never raise up war against our that it will never raise up war against our country. The ceremony ended as it should with a libation. To the glory of France, which concerned us deeply just then, we emptied a bottle of the most generous of her wines, which one of our companions had had the presence of mind to bring with him. Never was Bordeaux wine called on to play a more worthy part. Never was bottle emptied more fitly. Surrounded on all sides by eternal ice and snow, the cold was extreme. This generous liquor reacted with advantage against the rigours of the temperature. All this happened in less time than it takes to write it. <laughs> Did you arrive like that? Bottle of wine under your arm? <laughs> no, no, it was quite different. I flew down. I yeah. would, there's no way I would um, cross the Southern Ocean because I... I have heard what it's like. So I've, I've been down twice with Antarctica New Zealand, and the first time was in a C-17 Globemaster, which is one of those big hulking, um, big US Air Force planes that takes about five hours. Um, you land on the sea ice. And the second time was in a uh, ski herc, a Hercules, right. so you land on And do you like skis. flying in large steel tanks that you can't see out of? No, I'm actually a very anxious flyer mm -hmm. about any sort of flying. Um, and I was a bit worried, actually, about letting on before I went. The first time I went down um, was with Matt Vance. Um, and yeah, didn't I, was, tell him. <laughs> I didn't tell him. I was a bit scared of letting on about my flying anxiety in case they'd strike me off the list. Um, but yeah, it, it's a strange experience because you've got to put on all your um, extreme cold weather gear to get on the plane. plane. There's quite an intense safety briefing. And basically you've got it all on there with including your great big boots, gear that will keep you alive to something insane like minus 70 in the plane. Degrees or more. <laughs> okay. Well, not when that the plane's going to get that cold. It's mm. kind of in case something goes wrong mm. yeah. on the way down, that if you do sort of land somewhere where you shouldn't, that you are going to mm. keep warm. 
And when you arrived, yeah. you're, you're there as a science writer, mm-hmm. um, and you're there as a woman in a largely male environment, is it? Um, yeah. Scott Bass, not really, I think. No? So yeah. tell us about that. What, well, the Antarctic... Who's there? Um, a bunch of scientists. There's usually, uh, in summer, um, uh, there's a base staff of oh, t- 10 or 20 people. I'm looking at Janine from Antarctica, New Zealand. 35 staff over the summer. Yeah, and the rest are scientists, so I think it takes up to 85 people total in summer. Right. Yeah, mm. and there's uh, a huge mix of people, scientists, mostly from New Zealanders, but people from around the world as well. And some of them are working around base, but a lot of them are using it as a staging post to go off to field expeditions around the Ross Sea area. And when you got there, was it... Were you shocked? Were you surprised? Was it what you thought? Oh, it was, oh, it was completely on a high. It was yeah, exhilarated. Yeah. 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 I shed a little tear. It was, yeah. yeah, it was very, it was a wonderful experience. What did you do? What did I do? Yeah. Well, I was there for two weeks. Um, I mean, but what did you do when you got there and you're on this high and it's, I mean, did you well, wander you could, off by yourself or? <laughs> no, no, I got no. driven into uh, Scott Basin, put in a small room with the curtains drawn to have a PowerPoint presentation about safety on the ice. Right, that yeah. must have been neat. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of safety briefing, yes. and then you have to do um, Antarctic field training, which is you go off and spend the night in a tent, you pitch a tent, you cook your food, um, make sure that, you know, if, you, if yeah. you do get out there, you're going to... kind of what lots of schools do with their seventh formers, but it's a little more brutal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of safety protocols down there today, which is a big contrast to, right. you know, yeah. some of the stories yeah. that are in that book from the yeah. early days. Right. But once you've done all that, you know, you're free to right. explore. It was rather different, Alec, for you to arrive, wasn't it? Well, it was much more gradual, yeah. Mm. Uh, so we had safety briefings, but mm. sort of over the course of a couple of weeks, and... Uh, I ended up speaking to a lot of people who'd been multiple times, scientists, explorers, and, and tried to get from them what they, they, they um, what, what their sort of impressions of the of the continent were. Um, so when when I when we arrived, it was um, uh, the, the ships sort of came up to the edge of the fast ice after about ten days, uh, and we'd been snaking through pack ice, past icebergs. So you know, you get this sort of building sense of something coming. And the very first pieces of Antarctica we saw were the icebergs that were coming towards us in Iceberg Alley. And there were dozens and dozens of these things every day. So it became blasé to see icebergs, if you can imagine such a thing. Whereas in in the book, you described seeing your first one. Yeah, the first one was incredible. I mean, uh, and and rightly so, seeing these things, these things which are the size of small towns, 50 metres high, um, and then probably 200 metres below, and then they just dwarf your ship. And they come from, the first one we saw came out of the mist and just went past us and disappeared again. And it was something which, it was like, it was like seeing an animal for the first time. You've never seen this thing ever in, with your own eyes. And all I could do was stare at it and tried to sort of have, I tried to have profound words or thoughts around it, but I just couldn't. It was just too much. Um, but then, as you say, but then, you then become blasé because... A few days later, <laughs> they were everywhere. And it was quite incredible. And, and actually, what I remember, and I was surprised about, well, when we got there, when the ship arrived at the coast of Antarctica, there was a lot of fast ice, so we couldn't get right up to the uh, coast. The, uh, I was on a Russian ship as well, and the captain, there was no, obviously no moorings anywhere, so the, I was wondering, how's he going to stop this ship? He's going to drop anchor, but how? So what he did multiple times is ram the ship into the fast ice, which is how you stop. And it was just the most bizarre thing. I remember because I was right at the front of the ship, and we were coming up to the uh, ice, and I was thinking... Is he gonna? Is he gonna stop at some point? Or what's actually happening here? As someone said, just hold on. I'm like, what do you mean, hold on? And fortunately, my sunglasses didn't fall off. But yeah, I could well, have. The important them. things are good. Uh, yeah, but the the, 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 the the penguins that were there at the time scarpered quite quickly, but they came back and we saw them. Over. And then he, he did it a few times, and then we eventually ended up stopping, and then um, went down. Right. Do you, Matt, do you have a, a, a first experience memory? Do you, I mean, is it all just blurred to you now? It has blurred a wee bit uh, these days, but I do remember going south and seeing the first iceberg, and I, I still don't get blasé about icebergs. I, mm. Maybe it's the sailor in me, but I do get blasé about penguins. Like, other than king penguins, I get sick of them. But, um, <laughs> but the iceberg, the first iceberg is actually probably the, the most um, telling time that you're actually, you're going south. You've got... You've left Macquarie and you're going into the deep, deep south. There's no one around. You're in the middle of nowhere, and there pops up your first ice cream. That's the first sort of envoy of. I, I can imagine the only thing similar would be like going into a D-Day landing and the first bullet going whizzing past your head and thinking, right now we're 
we're getting close and it's that feeling of um, anticipation rather than the actual arriving. And, right. and even on the plane, when you're flying south and you know for a first couple of hours you're just flying over an empty ocean, when you do start seeing the first icebergs and then when you start seeing the sea ice, everyone's sort of getting excited and there's a sort of cues to look out the, the one tiny yeah. window or go up, go out and yeah. look out the cockpit. So um, Cherry, Girard, Cherry Garan wrote The Worst Journey in the World. You've mm. read all the worst journeys in the world, I dare say, <laughs> to select them for the book. Was that the worst, do you think? Oh, What's the worst, it was, the worst it was, you know of? Well, it was certainly the most well-told worst journey. I mean, it's an excellent, <laughs> an, it's an excellent book. Um, yeah, I, I mean, Mawson had a pretty terrible yeah. time as well with um, two of his friends dying, eating the dogs, his feet, soles of his feet falling off. Yeah. Um, but I think the thing about Cherry Garrard's trip is they went on this incredibly arduous journey in winter from one end of Ross Island to the other to collect these eggs of the emperor penguin. Um, and it was a lot colder than they had anticipated. And I, I think <coughs> down to minus 70. They had a, a hideous time, but they got the emperor penguin eggs and brought them back. There were three of them traveling. Um, and this was an important thing for science, they believed. But by the time they took them back to the British Museum, um, science you know, ideas yeah. had moved on and they weren't in the slightest and, bit interested. And what did he say? I wanted to murder someone. He was ready to murder someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Just imagine it. I'm, uh, I mean, you yeah. can't imagine it, can you? Yeah. Just, yeah. Mm. Mawson had three people too, didn't he? Because you went uh, to Cape Denison. Where, yeah, yeah, we, yeah. Went to his, we went to his house. I mean, uh, uh, as, as Rebecca said, his famous horrible journey mm. involved losing two of his two of his um best uh, two of his uh, exploring comrades um in in possibly the worst story you'll ever hear about um about a, a loss in that part of the world i mean i mean we went to um his um we ended up our target was his huts in, De in cape denison in boat harbor um, which to this day are, st are still standing um and have been restored um but um and very carefully went there with the Mawson Hutz Foundation, so we didn't just walk in, but uh, we went there with some historians, and what was incredible is even now, walking into that place, you see their, their, their old books there, their old um, sort of tins of, tins of uh, empty bottles of drink, and their stove's still there, some of the papers are still there. Of course, it's cold, so it has survived for that reason. And it's ice inside still? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, it's completely iced over inside. Very slowly they're chipping away at it because there are treasures underneath that for historians to understand what's there. But you don't want to just get rid of it all quickly because you might break something. Um, but it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a beautiful still uh, place. I mean, and and the, the remarkable thing about it is that it's about half the size of this room, the main hut. And there were 20 or so people living there for something like two years on bunks. And outside is the windiest place on earth. You know, hundreds of miles an hour, the winds pretty much regularly sort of, those, those amazing documentaries you must have seen from Frank Hurley's films of them standing at 45 degrees trying to build all of it. And essentially the, the, the winds are keeping them upright even though they're standing at, that, at, that, at those angles. Um, they must have had a horrible, horrible time every single day outside. And they lived in a tiny room to you. I mean, it makes you realise how difficult and what bravery was involved in what they did. And death was just part of that, I think. So, Matt, I'm, I'm going to guess that you've never had to trudge over the frozen landscapes with the soles of your feet coming off no, every no, day, no. but you probably have had a pretty horrific experience or two. Um, yeah, well, most of them have been pretty good, actually, but most, <laughs> most of my time has been spent at sea, the time that I enjoy. I, unlike these two, I'm a more of a sailor than a landlubber, but um, the... The times at sea, we've, I mean, I think the worst storm we went, we got in, in the, in the ship that I've been in, and there were times when we've sailed back from Antarctica where you could have sailed a dinghy. It's been 12 knots and puffy white flag, you know, flat clouds all the way. Uh, one time we did get caught right between two big lows, and um, it was about six o'clock in the morning, and I heard this wave coming through that inch thick steel of the hull. It was a thundering earthquake sort of sound, and it hit the boat, um, and there was an almighty whoosh and of course like every sailor you learn to sleep with your head upwind and so you stand up on your feet as the boat rolls and so we stood up you know, we all stood up on the end of our beds and I could hear as the wave backed off it was taking all the debris with it like the jerry cans the drums the ropes and um, 
went out on deck and had a look and what it had done is um, the lifeboat deck is 14 metres above sea level and it had shoved one of the lifeboats clean through its davits and out the other side and the back deck had picked up a naiad and crumpled it in the corner like an aluminium can and just compressed it. And that was the first time um, I think I, I, I felt that the Southern Ocean, you know, that, you wouldn't survive that in a yacht. You, wouldn't, you would have just been smashed to smithereens. And when boats go disap you know, disappear in the Southern Ocean, that's probably what happens to them most right. of the time. So no one told me this stuff. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no one told me it was yeah. and, and, and you being a journalist didn't think to read about it. Anyway. <laughs> People said it was a rough ocean. I didn't quite realise that we're talking something crazy like that. Yeah, yeah it is crazy, isn't it? <laughs> You've got the story in your book of Richard Bird. You've got his diary. Richard Bird, who wintered on the ice well under, didn't he? He, mm -hmm. he buried, he built himself a hut under the ice, or under, is it under the ice that we yeah, saying? Yeah, it was yeah, buried yeah. under the yeah. ice, yeah. Um, and had very nearly died because of it. He <laughs> tell that story. Well, he, he his plan um, was to spend the winter there making meteorological observations, mm. so to get a, a winter-long record of the weather conditions. Um, and he um, was going to do this alone. So he had this hut under the ice um, with a sort of hatch at the top for getting out, where he'd get out every day, um, take the temperature, check the um, instruments, look at the stars, um, whatever the weather. And one time he was outside and it was a blizzard whiteout conditions. And in these whiteouts, you absolutely, you cannot see a thing. And the hatch closed behind him. Um, and whatever the mechanism was broken and he couldn't open it. And he spent, he wrote quite a long piece about this. He spent quite a lot of time outside trying to work out what to do. Because at first there was, there was nothing possible he could do. He, there's no way he could wedge it open. And then he remembered that he had a, um, a spade that he'd left out there the day before. And he had to find his way to the spade and back to this place. And his um, mind's coming and going too. But oh, he's, he's, he's suffering from carbon monoxide poisoning from... Right. from being stuck in this um, underground structure with a, a faulty um, burner. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, he was not quite with it. But he did manage to get back in. He, he sort of wedged the spade in and... and so there's a, there's a handle and he gets the metal yeah. handle of the spade under that and he can't do it with his hands, he's got to lie on it. He, yeah, it took a lot of force yeah. and a lot of time. And it's his last chance. If, he, if that doesn't work, he's dead. Yeah, mm. but he got back in and literally fell fell back down um, into, his, into his heart with gratitude. But right. it's an amazing story, yeah. And Alec, you got trapped on the ice. Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> it all ended spectacularly, not how you thought. No, uh, so I, uh, one of the sort of things I learnt on the way down uh, from the expedition leader was... Uh, so so my, my normal life you know, in, in London is you, know, you, you kind of control how you move. You can go wherever you want. Same here. Yeah, <laughs> uh, any, anywhere, any city. <laughs> You, if you can't get some, if, if the you know the public transport screwed, you get to, whatever. You you can organise yourself, and of course you have to give up all of that um, when you go somewhere like the Southern Ocean or Antarctica. You you can't control anything at all. And one of the expedition leaders said to me that they never have, um, they never have plans for what they do every day. They just have a book of intentions which are all mediated by the weather. That's all they do. So some days they might go one mile, some days it might go 20 miles. And it's, each, each one is either, either one's possible, with, and they don't know which one's going to happen. So what happened to us was that we got to the coast of Antarctica, spent some time sailing around it, got to Mawson's huts and back again on, over, over the ice. And then we were, we were coming back, about to come back towards Bluff. And on that day, on that evening, I think, the winds just changed around, around where we were and blew the pack ice towards us. So we were pinned between the edge of the pack ice and the continent. And so I remember the first day, no, it wasn't, no one took it, no one was, it wasn't that bad. It was like, well, the winds will change or something. And the first day, the sea was two kilometers away. We saw the sea two kilometers away. And then one, one or two days later, the sea was 20 kilometers away. That's how much wind had blown in. And the, the, the wind just wouldn't change. It kept blowing more ice in. It was kept compressing the ice towards us. And we were slowly being compressed towards the continent. And suddenly you realise how powerful this ice actually is and how quickly it moves. It moved so quickly. Um, and we were stuck there for 10 days. We kept thinking every day the wind would change. It just didn't. And yeah, and then eventually uh, the captain of the ship issued a mayday and um, various icebreakers came to our assistance. Three um, of them. Three of them, yeah. in fact. Um, w uh, one of which got stuck th themselves. 
Um, but then we, there's a whole story attached to this, but um, eventually what happened was that we had to map out a small landing site next to our ship and um, a helicopter from the, um, the, the Chinese icebreaker landed next to our ship, took groups of 12 of us over to the Australian icebreaker, which, is le- which was sitting 20 miles away on the edge of the ice, um, and took us in groups to, the, to, to that one. Uh, and eventually we were evacuated like that, which wasn't expected at all. Um, but um, it was something which made you realize just how interconnected all these expeditions and people are. One of the things that astonishes me about that story is that you, in the build-up to it, as you're telling the story of arriving in Antarctica and the work that was done, because you were on a scientific expedition, there are scientists, a dozen different sorts of scientists, I guess, taking um, samples and specimens, and there's an enormous collection by that point of stuff to take back and analyse. And that, that's all left behind, presumably. Well, so what happened was that, um, in our case, there was a lot of expedition scientific work that had been done, mm. and it was sitting there in the ship. And so when the rescue happened, people were wondering, well, what happens to this now? Yeah. Because we didn't know if the ship was going to escape that at all. The, the, the crew wanted to stay behind on the ship, so they, they were left there, the Russian crew. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of conversation on what would happen. It, there's a possibility that they'd have to be rescued as well, in which case the ship would... There was, a, there was a small possibility the ship would have to be left there and would be consumed by the ice, which had never happened. Something like that hasn't happened for a long time. It would be a real environmental disaster. Uh, the paint, the, uh, the, uh, the fuel, all that stuff, it's not the kind of thing you want to leave in a pristine environment like that. Fortunately, as luck would have it, the wind did change, and the ice dissipated within about seven or eight days after we'd left. And in fact, our ship got back to Bluff faster than we did, <laughs> because we were, on the Aus- we were on the Australian ship, which then had to continue with its expedition yeah. to Casey, uh, the base, and do all its refueling and everything. Um, and that took an extra three weeks. So we were stuck on there. Stuck, I mean, we were guests on that ship. Um, and the, our ship went back to Bluff with all the scientific exp- uh, equipment and samples and everything. So it did make it back. There was a lot of gear on that ship, but it did make it back eventually. Is this a good time to talk about Adelie penguins and hooligan cocks? <laughs> you know the thing about penguins, they're cute, right? <laughs> Not these ones? <laughs> well, actually, the first time I saw Adelie penguins, I, um, which was at Cape Royds near Shackleton's hut, um, I hadn't read that story. Um, this is a piece in the book by George Murray Levick. He, he was a, a scientist on one of these early expeditions, and he studied the penguins and he wrote a couple of books about penguins when he was back in the UK. But there was um, some aspects of their behaviour that um, he found were inappropriate to put into these books. And so he he wrote a little um, booklet about the sexually depraved um, Adelie penguins. And and this and was, they really are. Yeah, yeah. If you can apply anthropomorphic. <laughs> yeah, it's probably too X-rated to read out. But he, this, this he thought was only suitable for other scientists right. to read. Um, so it's, yeah, he, he just distributed 100 copies. And then it was, this piece uh, was recovered from the archives a few years ago. Someone found it and published it, so I included yeah. it so in the book. So you've got a story of gang rape and necrophilia, and, and you know yeah. it's all in there. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's quite, but the, what, what was so disturbing at this time was, I mean, penguins so often talked about as being like little humans, you know, yeah. they're cute and they sort of look like little people. Um, and their behaviour was completely against any sort of Darwin- Darwinian ideas about, um, you know, re- reproduction and, I mean, homosexuality and things. It yeah. just, you know, it was just too uncomfortable, I think, for readers at that time. But he also posits it as a kind of band of... of Outsider well, males, they, yeah, they the, were the, the hooligan cocks. They were the young gather guys. over there on the. <laughs> well, they were totally. They were the unmated young male yeah. penguins. So most of the other penguins would be doing their work on the nest, um, yeah. hatching the eggs or looking after the chicks. And these were the young guys that didn't have anything better to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that was probably when we were at Royds, they would have been the ones that were coming to chat to us, weren't mm. they? Yep. So I didn't know okay. at the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And is there a human counterpart? Are there, are there, are there gangs of, of young scientists <laughs> who hang around on the edge of the parties? <laughs> <laughs> when we were preparing for this, um, one of you sent an email to the other about fancy dress. 
of fancy yeah. dress. Well, there's a long tradition of fancy dress on the um, on the bases in Ross Island. It just happens that we um, <laughs> arrived. I mean, we're arriving in Antarctica. I think for me, the first time, it just felt like having jet lag for days because the, the experience is so incredible and surreal. And so I arrived in time for the um, Miss Ross Island 2011 competition. Guess who, ladies and gentlemen? Skirt. <laughs> Skirts, mandatory. And so it was a dress-up party and, and the guys were all dressing up in, in drag and there was a competition. But the kind of disturbing thing about it was that it was the end of October Oh, it was just the beginning of November, so the guys had, sorry, end of November, so the guys had all done the Movember thing and grown moustaches to raise money for prostate cancer. So there were all these moustached guys with dresses on, and, and was, we were in Antarctica. Was he one of them? No, I did a Hare Krishna, because I got the haircut. <laughs> <laughs> Cop out, yeah. So I got to judge, I was a judge, right. which was okay. quite an honour. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and... Do you, Matt, do you go to Antarctica with a party routine that you... With a party? No, I'm not, yeah. You don't have a party routine no, that you trot out to... on the last night? And... The, the one thing I did when I was doing those trips is I'd always ski out to the A-frame, which is now the square frame because it burnt down, but I'd religiously go out there for a night. It was almost a, um, the, the one sort of bit of recreation amongst all the work. And I found it an amazing place to be because you'd just be out there with a the 24-hour sunlight and just sit there and watch the world go by. It was fantastic. So that was my only mm. little uh, routine that I had. Helen Heath has a um, poem about the Adelie. Shall I read it or would you like to read sure, it? Sure, mm -hmm. go ahead. It's called um, George Murray Levick and the Adelie Penguins. Blubber and soot and blubber and eyes raw with the smoke from the blubber-fueled lamps and clothes stiff from cooking with blubber. Audrey and the girls are so far away and the little hooligans are everywhere committing their depraved acts all the long Antarctic summer. Now I'll have the winter to wait and think about young males and their desperate moves in penguin suits. <laughs> <laughs> we can learn a lot, can't we? <laughs> you noticed something else about the Adelie penguins, which was that they were abandoning their eggs. Well, so one of the things that's... Um what a group of the scientists I was with were looking at was the effect of this fast ice that had grown around um, East Antarctica near Cape Denison. And uh, so this was 75 kilometres uh, wide from... So the, the, the edge of the actual continent was 75 kilometres from the edge of the actual ice. Um, and looking, they were looking at what effect that had on the wildlife and also the various climatic conditions around there. So it had been created because a massive iceberg had got in the way and so the ice which normally sort of comes off that part of Antarctica, which normally goes into the Southern Ocean, was being blocked and so had created this extra land, as it were. And the Adelie penguins, which there was, a, and there was a colony of these right outside Mawson's huts. Mawson writes about them himself, and I think probably ate many of them, uh, his group ate many of them. A very famous colony. We went to see this colony and um, they were, they just collapsed, basically. And there were penguins there still, but there were cracked eggs. These eggs weren't being looked after. The penguins would sort of stand over them, sometimes sort of rock the eggs around, as if they'd given up, essentially. And what had happened was essentially that they, they, because they had to each walk something like 75 kilometers each way to feed, because there was no open ocean near where they were anymore, um, there was just barely enough food for the penguins to look after themselves, never mind um, bringing them, bring anything back for their, for their, uh, for their young. And I was with a, a, a Kiwi ornithologist actually, um, and she, she was talking. She went there and she was talking about how, basically, these penguins won't move their colonies, despite the fact that they have to travel all this way. They won't move them because they're so stuck to where they grew up. It was, it was really tragic. There was, there were dead small birds around. It was, it was tragic. And they've actually published a paper on it now. Um, showing the collapse in that colony. But what she said was slightly more positive was that the next generation of penguins do learn. They do move. They will go and establish another colony somewhere else, perhaps closer to the edge of the ice. And eventually, one day, in the next decade or so, this iceberg will move out of the way, and that ice will clear, and that will become open ocean again. And it's just fairly natural for that sort of stuff to happen. But it was a tragic thing to see. Right. One of the things you remind us of in your book is that water comes from out of space. 
Yeah. Um, so which of you knows where the lair of the predator is? And what else comes from space? <laughs> where do you start? Meteorites? <laughs> I mean, when you say where do you start, I mean, what has astonished you the most about what's in Antarctica that came from elsewhere? Well, I mean, God, um, so, so all of our water does come from space. That's, that's something which is a story that's been developed over the last 20, 30 years in terms of how we understand where our oceans came from. Our planet did form out of the rocks and dust around the sun. And it did have a lot of water in there, but when it formed, the surface was incredibly hot and volcanic. So all of that water evaporated away. And uh, about four billion years ago, um, there's a period of time called the late heavy bombardment when asteroids and comets hit the Earth for 500 million years. You can imagine how rough that time must have been. But all of, these, all of these asteroids and comets have a little bit of water attached to them or contained within them, and they bring our oceans to the planet. And so all of the surface water is alien. Um, and, and for me, it's kind, of, it's kind of funny to think that this material which has shaped our world so incredibly, from climate to continents to life, and still does, it's completely alien. It's not a thing which this planet was born with, essentially, right. yeah. um, which I find remarkable in its own way. And if that's not remarkable enough, when you go to places like Antarctica and you see the epicness of the, uh, the ice sheets and how big it is and how much physical it is, well, you're in an environment of water. You, you know, underneath you, the land is essentially water, solid. Above you, there's plenty of water in the atmosphere. And you realize that water is responsible for your climate. It's responsible for your entire world there. And it, there's almost everything else is just a small imperfection in this world of water. And, and, and in that mass of all that ice, the, the water is teeming with life. It is. Life and and even underneath, in the ice sheets where you think there's nothing there because it's so cold and barren and the wind is horrendous. We've talked about how awful that is. And you think it's completely antithetical to the idea of life because it's so extreme. But even recently, when scientists have... Um, drilled down underneath the uh, ice sheets to lakes that have been uh, cut off from the rest of the world for a million years. They find microbes. They find thousands of species of bacteria and archaea and all sorts of things just there because, because there's water. And wherever there is water on this planet, there is life, even in these incredibly right. remote places in Antarctica. Rebecca, do you have a a most extraordinary scientific experiment or a favourite thing that's happening in Antarctica? But a favourite thing? Well, I, I guess I'd probably want to talk about the most significant thing. I've just been at this conference um, in Malaysia and the, the most significant thing that people are talking about is the melting of the Antarctic ice sheets and trying to get a handle on the speed with which they're melting. So there's people at um, uh, the Antarctic Research Centre at university where I work are doing a lot of work on um, trying to model what's happening with the ice sheets or they're collecting the paleoclimate evidence for what's happened in the past and that's fed into some models to try and predict what's going to happen in the future. And um, Robert de Conto, who just won the major science prize at the conference, his latest models predict that melting from the Antarctic ice sheets alone could contribute up to a metre of sea level rise by 2100. So there's additional sea level rise from thermal expansion and Greenland as well. Um, it, it's really, it's scary and it's significant. Yeah. But the really key thing that did come out of this conference is that the, the, the positive thing is we do have a chance to make a change and to stop that if and, we and, act And in now. what sense, how did that come out of the conference? What, how does that manifest? Well, it's just one of the but, key themes but, but, that was being talked but about. But it's not too late, you mean? It's not too late, yeah. Too yeah. Late. But, you know, this was a science conference. It's then up to yeah. policymakers mm -hmm. to, to implement the change yeah. and to us to lobby for it. A little bit of a theme on this weekend, <laughs> one or two sessions. Yeah. Um, Matt, do you have a favourite thing from the Antarctic, a favourite thing you saw or did or...? Um, Mine's a bit of the, the history in terms of Antarctica. The thing that I love about Antarctica is that it was dreamed of for 2,000 years before it was discovered. And there aren't many places that had that dream time. And the you know, Australian Aborigines talk about a dream time, but Antarctica had the longest dream time of any continent or any island on the planet. Um, I think it was Aristotle who came up with the idea that there might be something in the southern yeah. part of the world that bounces <coughs> the northern part of the world. 
But between him coming up with that idea and actually being discovered was a long, long period of time. And for that reason, when you give people a void, um, you, the void gets filled with sometimes nonsense, but I say it gets filled with really good yarns um, about what might be there, you know, Nazi UFO bases, frame, you know, holes at the end of the earth. And so the thing I like about Antarctica is all this conjecture around what it was going to be before it was discovered. And if you still, even to this day, if you Google up um, Antarctic conspiracy theory, you'll be there for ages. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's fantastic. It, what, doesn't exist? Well, it hasn't, you know, there's a hole in the end oh, of the earth and there's UFO right, bases yeah. and there's lizards there and, you know, you name it, it's all being piled into that void. Right. I was, I was going to, I wanted to ask you about dreams, actually, because Bill Manhai's book, which I mentioned before, is called The Wide White Page, Writers Imagine Antarctica. And, of course, it's filled with the writings of people who've been to Antarctica. Yeah, but he uses the word writers imagine Antarctica, and that's because I imagine if you've been there, you keep on imagining it, and <coughs> it stays in your dreams. Does it stay in your dreams? Yeah, uh, I had... Nightmares, had, dreams, or...? I'd actually had some really intense dreams about Antarctica for about 20 years before I went, and... Uh, so it was meant to be. It was some of these <laughs> dreams that really sort of cemented my desire to go, and it took yeah. a long time before I was able to go there. I do... Yeah, I think about it a lot. You do. Mm -hmm. Alan, do you? Um, wh I, I really... I didn't have too many expectations of, of what it was going to be like when I, before I went. And so I experienced everything um, sort of de novo and kind of enjoyed everything that was happening, even though it was cold and, and, and unpleasant, actually, if I describe it to myself now. Um, and despite everything that happened with us getting stuck and rescued and all the other things and the out-of-controlness of everything and the, the lack of ability to go anywhere you wanted to go and the lack of communications with families and family, I still think about it a lot. And I still think mainly I didn't even scratch the surface, even though I'd spent six weeks there. Mm. And I just didn't, I didn't get to scratch the surface. And I feel like it was over too quickly. I mean, it'll never, I don't think it'll, yeah. ever, it'll never... Will you go back? Ever feel, I'll go back in a heartbeat. You'll go back in a heartbeat. Matt, yeah. you'll go back, I assume. Yep, yep. And Rebecca, you'll go back. Yeah. I'm trying to, to find a way to do it. Right, yeah, yeah, <laughs> if I can. Yeah, yeah. So we are going to um, open to the floor for questions in just a moment. So if you've got something you'd like to ask, um, get that ready. What's the one thing you'd most like to see happen with Antarctica now? I'd like us to find a way to... Stop it melting to Stop reduce melting. CO2 okay. levels. Yeah. Alec? Yeah. I'd like to find a way for me to go back there. Yeah. If we can. <laughs> if we can just somehow engineer that towards and us. And Max's going to find a way to go back there and <laughs> stop it melting. Yeah. I'd like to find a way that we can run the world like we oh, run yeah. Antarctica. Because yeah. Antarctica's run as a co op and it's been run for 50 something years, yeah. Yeah. something like that. And that's, to be honest, we talk about climate change and all of that, unless we run the world that way. It ain't going to happen, we're not going to survive. So mm. I think that's the model for the rest of the world. But how, how that happens, I don't know. The, 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 the slightly worrying thing about I think Matt's point is very valid, and I would say it in a more serious point of view. I remember writing a lot about Antarctica when I came back. The Antarctic Treaty, which is the thing that makes what Matt's talking about happen, this cooperation, is up for renewal in about 15, 20 years. And there are lots of countries jockeying for mineral rights down there. Yeah. And you're going to see that happening more and more. And this is the whole basis of all the Antarctic land claims that happen, especially in this part of the world. So, and the awful irony of as ice melts, more minerals become more yes, easily they available, do, yeah. and that compounds the non yep. Who's got a question? Um, how, how did they get rid of the rabbits on the forest? Um, <laughs> helicopters and a whole lot of bait, and just flying and flying and flying and dropping and dropping and dropping bait, like they did with um, Campbell Island and like they did with the Antipodes. And it's just carpet bombing with poison, and eventually it's gone. But that, I mean, flying in Macquarie is there's two days a year in Macquarie where it's like this, where you actually could fly a helicopter. So the actual feat of doing that was is probably a story in its own right. I take my hat off to them. Another question. Oh, I have. No. Yep. What was the conditions? Good. Just, just fill us in on. Uh, she's, she's rough as guts. It's, it's probably one of the few huts that haven't been, um, uh, you know, restored for the sake of a better word. So it's, it's, it's there, and it's still. But all of those huts have that feel about them. But Borschwitz is completely rough as guts. It's, it's the way. It's the penguins have been in, and it's, it's rough and it stinks, and it's yeah, it's but good. There is a, a, 
there is a restoration program yep. um, <coughs> happening now. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, New Zealand Antarctic Heritage Trust. A hard one to restore though, because it's in Cape Adair, which is a long way from Scott Base. You need a ship basically to get in there to do it. Mm. So but Antarctica New Zealand's got a, and Anzari have got a big um, project at Cape Adair, which is making it possible. Yeah. Right. Question at the back. They actually built over the top of one. <laughs> yeah, so the, you can walk over the... Um, the, the yeah, I have. And the, the, the base, it's a beautiful base, but they put it on a colony, cause, and the colony is only there because it's bare rock. And you walk over the top of it, and the penguins just moved back in. The minute the bulldozers moved that out, they moved back in. And so the penguin colony is all around the base, and you walk over the top of them on the, on the boardwalks. And um, yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Classic French behaviour. Anybody else? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, do you find, um, from your experience, uh, would there be people that couldn't cope with the conditions in the Antarctic? Um, would they be screened beforehand so that you would, would know about it? Do you go through a screening process? For the, for the short visits, you, you have to have a, everyone has to have a medical screening. Um, I think for the longer visits, for the people who are going to stay on base, different national programmes have different levels of screening, but yes. But um, going crackers is a great winter tradition. And in fact, um, Mawson, the, the end of Mawson's story when he got back to the hut, his radio officer went insane. So he spent a winter in a room half the size of this with a, a person who was um, severely schizophrenic. And, and he spent the rest of his yeah. life in institutions, institutions after so that. There is a history of that. But, There's a few examples in the book. But well. that said, what Matt was saying about if we ran the world like we ran Antarctica, I found that people invariably when I've been in Antarctica is just the nicest, most mm. yeah. um, cooperative, generous bunch of people. There's a lovely thing yeah. you've got in your book by Regina Isart, Isart mm -hmm. is it? Yeah. who talks about being there at Christmas and everyone does a secret Santa and it has to be handmade things and because although they're secret, everybody knows the person that has known for some time the person they're going to give it to because they've been living with them for months. They're really lovely. The gifts are fantastic. She calls them awesome, but she's not a yeah. writer. <laughs> but yeah, that's, a, that's really lovely. Another question? Up the back? I'm sorry. The sunlight, is that, like, how long is it actually for? Is it, does it vary according to the part Yes. It do, yeah, it depends which base you're at. But what, what is it, Scott Base? How long do they lose the sun for? It's four months. Four months, yeah. And that's incredibly hard. I mean, you don't know how hardwired we are to the sun until you have to sit there and see it go around all day, every day, or not see it at all. And in the end, that, that has an effect on your head, and you know, either too much sun or not enough, and it will. And mm. to be honest, that's probably what space travel, if humans ever do space travel, that's the thing that's going to get them. It's actually keeping their marbles, not, not actually the physical side of it. Yeah. Question over here. Thank you a lot. I very much enjoyed this uh, the volunteer trip down there. I hope to do it myself in a, unfortunately, a paid way uh, next year with a friend who's always wanted to go there. But it's one thing that's sort of always part of the Antarctic in my um, mind, and it's the fact that once that base was mottled and you know, it's a tropical island, and uh, the whole thing just turned into a, a different place. And you see the dry valleys and things, which actually look perfectly like uh, parts of the United States, Arizona, or something that are not when cold, but they do just look the same. And, and, there, and the desiccated sort of seals too. The impact <laughs> of this um, warmer tropical place turning like this, is, obviously it doesn't normally appear in anyone's mind, but it's quite a, to my mind, a, the strangest of all contrasts, you know, and of course it's the real picture of climate change and the world evolution. And, and I think that's the bit about the whole place that really you just, you just can't quite follow, you know, it just, just sort of was a casual look at it. And the, but it, obviously it's researched a lot down there, but does it, you can't conceive of moisture or humidity at all when you're there, you're in a desert. But if you look at, and Rebecca's probably better to speak about this than me, but the Andrew program looked at the past climate. How many years did they go back? 40 million, something like that? Yeah, 35, 40. 35 million. But you, you look at the record and there's actually 
you know, quite a few periods where it's warmed up. Maybe not tropical, but it's warmed up and cooled down and warmed up and cooled down. But, so it's actually, it's actually more like a sort of a um, speedometer for the planet in terms of telling us what, what has happened. Mm. What would you say, Rebecca? I'd say that as well. Great. <laughs> <laughs> We've got time for just a couple more quick questions. If anyone has something they'd like to ask, there's one over what's here. The, the ecotourism big bone around the world, what's the effect of tourism on Antarctica? Well, it, it's, you could probably talk about this too, but I know on the Antarctic Peninsula, which is that area where you get the most tourist visitors, because um, it's the most accessible and there's mountains and, and megafauna and so on, um, invasive species is one of the issues there. If you go down there, you've got to vacuum out your pockets and check all your Velcro for seeds, um, insects, things like that, because as the... Um, the temperature is getting warmer, and that's the part of the planet that's warming the fastest. It's becoming more hospitable to species that previously would not have been able to survive there. But what about for the sort of expeditions? In, in the do? Ross Sea, where I go with uh, heritage expeditions, it's getting less. There's actually less people because you get at least two good hidings on the way down and two good hidings on the way back up. So <laughs> the Southern Ocean is the best moat you could ever, ever want for a place like that. <laughs> um, peninsula, peninsula only takes two days across Great passage, so you can, you know, strap yourself into bed and take some pills and wake up two days later, and you'll you'll be in Antarctica, but not the Ross Sea. You've actually yeah. you've got to do what Alec did. And there's something like thirty thousand visitors or more to the peninsula each yeah. year. I mean, it's massive. The peninsula is like Grand Central. Massive and cruise ship. The Ross, yeah. Ross Sea just doesn't. Seem and then there's all the other people who don't actually land, but they just sail down the yeah. cruise ships and go back. Yeah. Any last last question? Well, um, it's computed that the actual ozone hole is um, developed over the Antarctica is actually improving. Um, what, at its worst point, would the effect actually on um, global quality? Just cools the place down. It's like having the lid off the um, the glass house, basically, and all the heat straight up through the roof. So that's probably what's kept Antarctica a little bit cooler. It hasn't actually central Antarctica hasn't really warmed up. So the Antarctic Peninsula has warmed up, but central Antarctica has had the roof off for probably how many years. So that's probably actually helped keep it cold. I don't know about the fauna and flora, yeah, though. I'm not sure about the UV um, impacts on the fauna. No, not a lot of flora done. Yeah. So, thank you to Antarctica New Zealand for sponsoring the session. Thank you to Matt Vance, Alec Jar, and Rebecca Priestley. I have enjoyed enormously listening to them, and I'm pretty sure you have too. So, thank you.